Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad that you're able to join us here or online. And uh, we're just, it's fun to be together as the church. Uh, there is uh, something that I've seen in my lifetime that's uh, kind of remarkable to me, uh, something that I'm not sure I completely understand, but uh, there, there is a, uh, some who love to do church anonymous, some who love to do church in, a, in the context of so big of a group that they will never be known and never know the guy who's preaching or never know the person that's leading worship or never know, like the idea is that you find that you won't be disappointed maybe. Maybe that's the, 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 like the point of it is that maybe by the sheer size of it that you can come to church and never sit next to the same people. And I'm not saying that big churches are wrong. I mean, you can be in a big church and still connected. But there are some who go to churches and their goal is to not connect. Their goal is to not be seen. Their goal is to not make a connection where they would have any accountability back and forth. And I maybe understand it. It might be born from disappointment that having tried to connect, they, they were disappointed. They found it not to be what they'd hoped it for, would be. They got their feelings hurt. There are, there's plenty of hurt to go around in family and in friendships and in church. And to be honest, the first days in a church are usually the best because everybody's friendly and everybody's nice and it looks like everybody's doing fine, but as you get to know people, it's harder. There was one person who came to my small group back at a previous church, and I was leading a small group, and they said they had tried to engage with another small group and talk about the problems that they were going through, and the small group leader pulled them aside and said, we don't do problems in our small group. <laughs> well, how is that possible? The only way that's possible is if you stay anonymous, because everyone has problems. So the, the concept is, is that we would do church in anonymity and then there's peace, right? And less pain. Same with family. Some think that if we keep family at a distance, and I know some of you have some very hard family stories. I know there are those who are, have to have their guard up and boundaries are a very real and necessary thing. But some people do families where let's keep it light, let's not talk about anything serious, let's not start anything, let's just survive it. Family anonymous. Is that good? Is that what God intended? How is it that God calls us to live out among family and friends? Today we're going to look at, as we continue our study of walking with Jesus as we lead to the cross, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is interacting, in a sense, with his family member, John the Baptist. And we're going to see his heart in how he does this. So read with me, if you will, in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19. And we will see that sharing 
uh, with Jesus, walking with Jesus, we would have seen how he did that with family and friends. Matthew 11, 1 to 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at the life of Jesus as he is moving towards the cross and his ministry, and moving towards the resurrection, that pinnacle moment where we were saved, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and the heart to respond. I pray that we would be soft soil and that we would walk with you anew, that we would be changed by your words, by your deeds, and by the, by the cross. I pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. To understand what's going on in this story, you need to understand a little bit about what's going on between Jesus and John. John the Baptist and Jesus, we only see them interacting with each other, you know, one time or two times. Two times if you count the time in Scripture where they were babies in utero and John leaps in the stomach. He's the first one to acknowledge that the Savior is in his presence. And he hasn't been born yet as Mary visits Elizabeth. And then later, we don't know their relationship, but they've had a relationship, and we don't know how often they've gotten together as family. 
But by the time that Jesus comes to begin his ministry, it's John the Baptist, his family member, who starts his ministry by saying, I never recognized you. I didn't recognize you. But this is the one who I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John is there to send him on it. Now, there's a lot that isn't written in Jesus' story, and we don't know how often they went to temple together or traveled to Jerusalem together. We don't know how they interacted, but we do know that Jesus loved John, that this was a family member that he loved and was personally involved with. And we see that because of how Jesus grieves at his death and how he responds in this situation. Well, last week we had a conversation up here about the sermon, um, one of you and I, and we were talking about uh, how do I preach the gospel because last week's sermon was about just proclaiming and having the will and the desire and the, uh, the, the open-heartedness to proclaim the gospel in all of our situations. But we didn't talk about the how. Now today we're going to look a little bit at how do we do that with family and friends. How do we interact with our calling and with the gospel and how do we witness to family and friends? This passage begins when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in the cities. This is the first verse that follows the sermon from last week. And in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is in prison at this point because he has confronted one of the leaders, Herod, and told him, but what he's doing is sinful, and he's proclaiming that. He's re- proclaiming repentance and judgment of God like he was supposed to. This is his job, to proclaim repentance and judgment. And as he does, does that, he's thrown in prison. And we know from Josephus that he was in prison for a year. And while he's there, he does this interesting thing. He sends two of his disciples, we know it's two from the Count in Luke, He sends two of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Christ? Now, wait a minute. He leapt in his mother's womb when Jesus was there. Okay, maybe he doesn't remember that. He was told it, probably. So much so that it's in the scriptures, so that that account was something that was told. Uh, He has baptized Jesus and seen a dove come down from heaven And he sees it descend on Jesus, and he hears God speak, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And now he's saying, are you really the guy? Why is that? What's going on? We see John's ministry decline. So much so that it's acknowledged in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, it talks about John's ministry declining and his disciples saying, hey, what's going on? And John says, in faith, I must become less and he must become more. Well, it's easy for us to quote. It's much harder to watch it happen. He has a ministry where he has boldly stood up against the powers that be. His popularity rose and he became prominent in the wilderness 
in poverty, giving up his rights, and he's declaring the message that the Elijah was supposed to preach. It's also interesting in John chapter 1, when asked if he was the Elijah, he says, no, I'm not. I wasn't. And Jesus says later, actually, he was the Elijah. So John doesn't see everything and understand everything. And in fact, by the time he's in prison, he's like, I don't understand why this is happening. This doesn't make any sense to me. This was, I was supposed to precede the one who was to come, who would reign, who would be the king. And in fact, as I wonder if Jesus and John talked about this when they were young and what the Messiah was, because this was a prominent thought in Israel at the time. They would talk about the verses about the Messiah, and they longed for the Messiah to come, the one who would come and cast out the Romans and reestablish the king. You know, there was a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah would come and reign forever. Like David, better than David. And in Isaiah 25, 7 and 8, it says, The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. John knew this passage. John was longing for this to come true, and here he is in prison experiencing loss and suffering and pain. Where is the Messiah? In order to understand John's doubts at this point, you have to understand that this, there wasn't anyone who expected Jesus to come like he did. Now, it's clearly in the passages that he will be a suffering servant and that he will suffer and die. But they couldn't see it. John couldn't see it. John expected that when the Messiah came, and can you imagine the excitement when he said, there he is? The next day after he was baptized, Jesus is walking and he says to his disciples, this is John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. And John's disciples, Andrew, left Jesus' side and walked with Jesus. From that, left John's side and walked with Jesus. And John's ministry diminished. So here he is sending two disciples. Are you really the guy? Are you the one that was spoken of? Or should we look for another? In verse 4, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why is Jesus pointing out these miracles? Because these two were written about in Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, speaking of what will happen when the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the death unstopped. Written 700 years before Christ. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This list of what Jesus did is prophesied in the Old Testament about it. And in Matthew 9, we see the blind receiving sight. Matthew 9, 27 through 31. 
We see the lame walking in Matthew 9, 1 through 18. We see a leper cleansed in Matthew 8, 1 through 4. We see the deaf here in Matthew 9, 32 to 34. The dead are raised in Matthew 9, 19 and 23 through 26. These miracles were signs that the Messiah has come, and he's saying to John, let me point you back to the passage. You're saying in Isaiah, maybe this, he should have come and wiped away every tear, and this future thing that's going to happen should be happening right now. You can trust that I'm the Messiah, even though it doesn't make sense to you right now, by the signs and the fulfillment that you are seeing. Tell him. Tell him that the prophecies are being fulfilled and that Jesus is accomplishing these things. Preaching the good news to the poor, Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. He draws attention, Jesus draws attention to his ministry that is the fulfillment of a prophecy of what the Messiah would do. And in what way does he declare hope? And in what way does he bring help for the brokenhearted? He does so by healing the wound of sin that's in our hearts, the enemy and the tyranny of sin in our own hearts. He was tackling something so much bigger than Rome. But it wasn't just John that couldn't see it. Jesus' disciples couldn't see it. All of them were scratching their heads saying, I don't get it. And how do you make sense of Isaiah 53 where this suffering servant is crushed in the way that he's crushed? They didn't understand. And Jesus gives this report to them. Why? He ends with, blessed is anyone who does not fall away because of me in this first section, witnessing to family and friends. Does it bother you that Jesus is who he is? And he came to do it, even if you can't understand what's going on? Even if you can't see his goodness and his righteousness and his plan? Are you offended that he's the Savior? And he's leading the way that he is then and now. Blessed is anyone who does not fall away because of me. I want you to see this morning, as we see the point as witnessing to family and friends, I want you to know how hard it is to witness to family and friends. And I want to use the term witnessing here, not just in trying to lead them to Christ for their first moment in salvation, but leading them to Christ again and again even through doubts. How do we interact with each other? Well, my experience is that family and friendships, they last a long time. It's more of a marathon than a sprint. I have been in conversations with people where I can have just a moment, maybe I lead them to Christ, and I have five minutes interaction with them 
And that's the end of my interaction with them for their whole lives. Not so with family. When I turned my life around and gave it to Christ, the friendships that had lasted a long time and my family, they were reluctant to believe it was true. Why? Well, because they knew me. Family, family sees you at your best and your worst. Friends know you. They know who you are. How do we interact in a way that we draw people to Christ? Well, Jesus' example here is he gets the doubts of his friend and family member, John the Baptist. And it's semi-public that this is happening. I don't know, I mean, it's very public once it makes the scriptures. And this story is told again and again in the Gospels. So it's very public from a, but maybe he pulled him aside. Maybe the disciples said, Jesus, John's having his doubts. Jesus handles John in the same way that we should handle our family and friends is point them to the word of God. Point them to the scriptures. Point them to God's word. I could argue and try to tell you what a great thing it is to be a Christian because let me look at my life experience and how God has changed my life. And that's a good story, but that isn't where we'll find real help and hope is in Todd's story. Real help and hope comes from the story of the word of God. And and Jesus points John back to Isaiah. Back to the story. Go back and look again and camp in Isaiah 53, if you would. And you'll know a little bit of what it's about to come with the Messiah. He's about to be crushed. Don't doubt. This is personal to Jesus. And if we were walking with Jesus, one of the reasons that John the Baptist weighs prominently in the gospel is because John the Baptist weighs prominently in Jesus' heart. When Jesus hears of John's death, he's crushed. We see it in chapter 14 of Matthew, just two chapters on. And he wants to get away and be alone. This is personal, just like it is for all of us. For all of us with family and friends, sometimes that's the hardest place to tell people, my friend, I need to say this. You're wandering away from Jesus. You're, you're risking it all, and you don't know what you're doing. And I, I don't. Keith Green said it this way in a song to his parents I need to say these things because I love you so, and I'm sorry you get angry when I say that you don't know. But there's a heaven waiting for you and me, and I only want you to see. We could talk a lot about why it's difficult to witness to family and friends and the intricacies of witnessing to family and friends. But ultimately, the following the model of Christ is to point back to the word of God and declare the excellencies of our Savior. Am I a mess? Does my pride get in the way? Does my anger get in the way? Do, yes, I'm guilty. But have you seen my Savior? From witnessing to family and friends to support for family and friends. Look at 
verses 7 through 15. Take a second look at it. And as they went away, and it's an important phrase in verse 7 as it begins, as they went away, these disciples are doing what Jesus said and they're beginning to leave. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Why is it important that that's put in the verse that as they went away, Jesus began to speak? Jesus wants John to hear what he's teaching. Jesus wants to extend encouragement to John. Jesus wants to buoy his faith and his, he knows that John's story is going to have suffering in it like ours. And this is Jesus supporting John by letting everybody hear what he's about to say. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What might that mean? Now, John preached in the wilderness, just so you know, and he was popular, and the people who would come when we're following Jesus, many of them used to follow John and are no longer following John, they're following Jesus. And he addresses them saying, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What is that? Well, there were two kinds of reeds. There was the reed that was like grass that would flow with the wind, and that's the one we're talking about here, that would, it wasn't a rod. This was one that would float back and forth and would go with the wind this way and that way. And he's saying, is this the kind of teacher that would change his direction just for pleasure or for money or for popularity? Was he taking a poll at the beginning of his sermon? How many people are going to like my sermon today? All right, you need to preach a sermon. He had a whole team around him. Preach this way and people will like you. Did you have that kind of guy that you were going to listen to? No. He was a guy that willingly preached what was right and it cost him his freedom. Did you go out to see a reed blowing in the wind? A reed shaken by the wind. In verse 8, and then did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Maybe your version says fine clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. John the Baptist was very popular. His popularity was so high that Josephus, when he tells a history of Israel and he gets to the first century, John weighs in it pretty heavily. John gets a pretty big position in the, from, a, from a non-Christian historian perspective. He talk, they talk about John the Baptist. John's popularity at its height was scary, so much so that when Jesus wants to press the Pharisees, he says to them, was John from heaven or from hell? Was he from God or from Satan? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? Tell me. And they were afraid to say, because if they say John was a good guy, then they have to admit that they were wrong. And if they say he's a bad guy, they're afraid that the crowds will turn on him. John the Baptist was very popular. Do you know he never used his popularity to gain nice clothes or a nice house or comforts? He could have. He could have leveraged this popularity. He could have gotten ahead. And Jesus, 
in a sideways say, is, is saying to everybody, did you go out to see somebody in soft clothing? You go out to see somebody wearing the clothes of somebody rich? Was he driving a Mercedes chariot? No, this is a guy in sackcloth and ashes and eating locusts. He's affirming him and affirming his ministry. In verse 9, then, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than that, more than a prophet, this is the one of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare your way before you. Did you go out to see a prophet? And Jesus, yeah, yeah, he was not only a prophet, he was the prophet that was prophesied about in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3.1 and Exodus 23.20 were passages that Jewish boys were raised Jewish kids were raised to read and understand at the festivals that this is what we're looking for with the Messiah. They would talk about this one who was to come. And here Jesus, and I wonder if Jesus and John, when they went to temple together, if they talked about this together. And here he's declaring what John said. He didn't understand so much that he didn't even know he was the guy. He's saying John was the guy. I was the one who declared in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus is affirming him. That's why he's saying it within the ears of the disciples of John who are going back and giving a report. Now he goes on to say something interesting. In verse 11, behold, I... Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, he's saying Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Moses, Daniel, all of those heroes from the past, Sarah, Rahab, all of those ones that we look up to and they looked up to in the, old, in, in the first century, Jesus is saying, John has surpassed all of them. Why? In his righteousness? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying he surpassed all of them because he was the one that declared this is the Messiah. He is the one who ushers in the new covenant. He is the one who brings, the, he, he precede, he's the one that preceded the Savior and it cost him his life. And his ministry was completely sold out for preparing a way for the one that he couldn't untie his sandal. The affirmation is of John's ministry here for sure. And, and as we see support for family and friends, I want you to know that Jesus' heart was to encourage his friend and family member. Now, he didn't send a message that you're going to be free and life's going to get easy and everyone around you is going to recognize the good work that you've done and 
you're going to get personal acclaim and a comfortable ending. Actually, in two chapters, he'll be beheaded. But right before that, what precedes that is Jesus encouraging him. But he goes on to say that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He is the one who ushers in the new covenant and the new age. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There are a couple of ways to interpret this, and I'll give you both of them. What could that possibly mean? Meaning that the kingdom of heaven that is to come when we end up in the next stage of life when we are risen with Christ, that that experience, no one, that the least person in that era is going to be greater than John the Baptist here in this role. That's one way of interpreting it, but if you know anything about the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew talks about the kingdom of God as having already arrived. So I prefer this interpretation that we who have chosen Christ receive the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and we live on the other side, new covenant side of the resurrection and after the resurrection, those who are children of God have a relationship with God that is unlike anything that preceded it. And in, because of our relationship with God, that gives us clean access and unhindered access to our Savior. We can go to Him in prayer. We have the Spirit living within us. We can abide in Christ. We have a relationship with God where we have been blessed with every heavenly blessing on the earthly realm, Ephesians 1. It's a remarkable privilege. And I think Jesus is saying, John is walking with God and doing God's work. And what he's doing is the greatest work of a man up to this point. But it's nothing compared to what's about to come for everyone who's in the church. Did you know that? Did you know that you have unhindered relationship with God and a privilege? You can come into his presence. You can walk with him, abide in Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wasn't just trying to encourage John. He's, he was encouraging us. He was encouraging his followers. Verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you are willing to accept it. I wonder if he's actually talking to John there. By the way, you answered that you weren't the Elijah. Bad news for you, you were. He didn't understand all that was happening. He couldn't understand all that was happening. And Jesus is encouraging him and us in our suffering. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is a common comment by Jesus. Are you listening? I mean, I know you heard the words, but are you listening? The kind of listening that changes our hearts. We can witness to family and friends by the example of Christ. We can support family and friends by the example of Christ. 
How about ministry of family and friends? Look at 16 through 19. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What shall I compare this, to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played for the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. What's he saying? Well, we'll see it played out as, as he, we read the next couple of verses, but I think he's talking about the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist came, and his ministry was by preparing the way for Jesus of sermons of repent and judgment. The judgment of God is at hand. It is about to descend. Be careful. You might miss this. It was a hard teaching. When the Pharisees came, he turned to them. He was the first to say, you brood of vipers. He stood up to those who were in power and, and he told them they were dangerously risking their eternal lives. Don't you know the judgment of God is at hand? We played a dirge for you and you did not mourn. And Jesus comes with Sermons of the kingdom, and he moves, he begins talking about repentance and judgment, and he moves towards invitation of those who are sick and those who are suffering and those who are sinful and those who are outcasts. And they gather around him, and here's a place at the table for him, and he begins to celebrate with them. He goes to parties with tax collectors, and while he's at parties, he talks about them having a place in the kingdom. He played the flute. Who was it that did not dance? Who was it that did not mourn? All who wouldn't hear it truly and respond correctly. Jesus is talking about the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, and we'll see that in the next two verses that come. But the first thing that I want you to see is the responsibility laid on the generation that is hearing these ministries. That it's incumbent upon us to hear the word of God and to respond and to have soft hearts, and if you were a men's breakfast yesterday, soft soil that plants seeds of repentance and faith. Jesus was inviting to a wedding feast, and John was preaching judgment. And in the context of ministry, I worded as ministry of family and friends. John and Jesus, when they were young, and if they talked, I don't know their story, close enough that they, certainly they had to have talked about the scriptures, and certainly they had to talk about ministry. Well, as they did, they saw each other giving up their lives in different ways. John the Baptist is giving up his life for his ministry. And Jesus is giving up his ministry, giving up his life for his ministry. And how is it that we co-minister when we are surrendering our lives? 
Well, I have to tell you that my experience, I've never been at risk of sacrificing my life because I'm a Christian. I've never been persecuted in that way. But from a very early time as, a, as an adult, I have served and served beside other people and my best friendships and the best relationships are when we go back to back and serve and lay down our lives together for Christ. And that means when one of my friends is laying down their life for Christ, it might cost them. It surely will cost them. I remember Wes's dad when he was getting ready to go to the ministry for the first time. Wes wasn't born yet. And I'm building a basement apartment for him in his parents' house at the time. He would eventually build one in mine. And I built this room in the basement where they would live. And I built the box for them. And I, I recognize my friend is going to Africa. And I'm going to stay in America. And our life choices are going to lead us very differently. And I'm going to watch him surrender much of what we dream about having in America. And if John was here, I didn't ask him ahead of time, but if John was here and Anna was here, Wes is here, you can ask him. It's right there. He was playing violin a minute ago. Is it worth it, Wes? Yeah. He's got you with a thumbs up. None of you get to see it. You don't get to see it on the screen, but he did this. We surrender our lives and we watch our friends and family surrender our lives for Christ. And it costs us something. What we see in the last two verses of our passage in verse 18 and 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. That's how you treated him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. John came, he didn't eat, he didn't drink alcohol. He wasn't eating fine food. And they said, look at him, he's crazy. And sackcloth, look at his He's nuts, don't listen to him. And then Jesus comes along and they catch him, they watch him engaging in parties and fun and relationship with tax collectors and sinners and, they, and hold it as an indictment against him. Look at him. Look at him. He's hanging with sinful people. He can't be a good guy. And he ends and says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I wonder if Jesus liked the title, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I, I think he does. I know I like it as a sinner. As a sinner, I am so glad that he was entitled a friend of sinners, but I don't say it derisively. I say it thankfully. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And wisdom is justified by her deeds. What does that mean? That means that when you're walking in ministry and when you're walking with Jesus and when you're called by him and you're sent by him and when you're empowered by the Spirit, it will be put on display by your character. Just look at the character. He's saying to his disciples and he's saying to those who are listening, 
do you want to know if John the Baptist is doing the work of God and do you want to know if Jesus is doing the work of God and that you can trust them? Well, look at their fruit. Do they love? Are they gentle? Are they kind? You have to look at their fruits. Look at at the cross, these leaders in the synagogue who are crying out hateful, hurtful words to Jesus, spitting on him, and remember these words as we move towards the cross on Easter. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. You say you're doing God's work. Does that look like God's work? Or does that look like God's work? The reality is, is that some of my best friendships have happened in the context of ministry. Some of my closest family relationships have happened in the context of ministry. Living out our Christian calling with family and friends is hard. We're broken. It's a mess. We're going to celebrate the resurrection and then many of us are going to go spend time with family and family isn't easy and you don't have to give me an amen. (laughs) But that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where we're called to live out our faith in the context of family. Real unity is not found in anonymity. Real unity is found in a miracle from God. And I'm still praying for that miracle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us wise in how we encourage and witness to each other and to our families. Father, I pray that you would help us to encourage each other truly. Forgive us for the ways that we don't. And Father, I pray that while we're here, that by the power of your Spirit, that you would use us for your ministry and put us to work for eternity's sake and for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.